All right. Well, so we're we're in Exodus still, and we I talked mostly about the law last time, and um, got into at the end a little bit about the Ten Commandments. And what we were talking about is that the law is Christ. It always has been Christ. It's, it's Christ described in words and required. Uh, um, required uh, of a people that couldn't do it but it's always been God's view of his son and uh and that's just a really really important thing for us to understand because if we don't understand that then the whole if we don't understand that God was requiring those in his son to live as that corporate son, then we then we're not understanding the, the the law correctly because that's that's what it is. Israel is my son, even my firstborn, and those who were brought into the death of the lamb and brought out of Egypt and brought into uh, a, a new covenant, or an, it was the old covenant, but it was new for them, a covenant with God. That covenant is Christ. That all of the covenants are Christ, but. I mean, all of the the covenants of the Old uh, Testament are pictures of Christ in one way or another, and uh, and 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 describe uh, what it means for people to relate <clears throat> with God in Christ, and that that goes back to Noah and up through Abraham and Moses and Phineas and. Uh, there's actually two with Moses. Moses, there's the whole Mosaic law that we're all familiar with, and there's this other. Uh, shorter thing, I, but he calls it a covenant besides the one made on Mount Horeb in, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, 29-30, uh, um, uh, which has to do with the, the, the word that is not too far off. Um, we'll talk about that one day when we get there, but... And then there's, you know, David, and whatever. Whatever the covenants are, they're not all different unrelated things. They're all... They're all pictures of the one relationship that God offers the human soul, which is the reality of being in his son, relating to him with that son, with Christ, as the nature and definition of the relationship. And so so the, everything that God describes in the law wasn't just a, a bunch of rules and um, things that he liked to see, like meal offerings and... Um, sacrifices and certain kinds of behavior they were descriptions um, pictures symbols, figures allegories, type shadows of of, of spiritual realities that are now <clears throat> they, they were formerly external temporal and physical and they are all now internal, spiritual and eternal and that's just the, that's the big change. That's what you you know we and and I'd say this all the time, but we could go through the whole Bible. This is just really shocking. I just got an email this this week saying I've never never heard. I've been a Christian all my life, read the Bible a million times, never heard anything like that. That uh, this that that the new covenant is internal and spiritual, and it's amazing that we can do that. I did the same thing for a lot of years, but. But we can miss that, even though it's on every page. I mean, starting with Jesus in the New, in, in the Gospels, everything he said was. I mean, I mean, just about everything was pointing to 
sometimes using external things, but pointing to an internal problem and an internal solution. You, you clean the outside of the cup, the inside's the problem. Out of the heart, the overflow. You know, you, you think that cleaning these vessels makes you clean because of what goes into your mouth, but what comes out of your mouth is the problem. You think that if you don't kill your brother, you haven't murdered, but you know, anger in your heart towards your brother is the same thing. And, and, and everything that Jesus uses to describe the true problem and the true solution <clears throat> is inward and spiritual. And, then, and then, then he describes a kingdom that is inside, and he describes leaven that's not just yeast, and it spreads. And he describes the kingdom of God in a whole bunch of inward and uh, symbolic ways. And then he, and then the then the apostles do the exact same thing. And and you know the circumcision that's not made with hands. It's inward. It's spiritual. It's eternal. The baptism that isn't about water. It's it's a being placed into the the, the death and resurrection of Christ. There, you know, and there's the priesthood, which is no longer. You know, it, we could go on through all of them. Anyway, I just say that just because it's such a it's such it's unfortunately not it's, it's such a new idea to so many believers, and um, and they stumble over. It. They really do. They stumble um, over that, and and uh, just say that. It's hard for them. It's hard for them to even imagine that that could be be what the Bible's talking about. After all these years of not hearing it uh, proclaimed that way, even though that's that's what it is on every page. So um, the law is is Jesus Christ, His nature, His offering, what He has made unto us, what He works in us unto His Father, the the, the reality of worship, purification, ministry, all that He does in us, the way that He relates to His own family, the way everything. There's a bunch. There's a variety of different laws, and I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about uh, Exodus 20 through 23, which are the 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 first real you know detailed set of laws that Moses gets up on the mountain. And, but I'm not going to get into all the different ones. Some things kind of stand out more than others, and I'll talk about those things, uh, a, few, a few of those things. But if you ask the Lord, like David in Psalm 119, to open your eyes and show you wonderful things in his law, the wonderful things that he's going to show you are the ways, are the windows through which the law lets you see Christ. That's what, that's what opens up. It's not the wonderful things isn't uh you know if you read commentaries on Old Testament laws, they make the wonderful things so much of them i mean I, most of them that I've read you know they'll say things like, "See this rule about purification this is this is about God giving them a a a method of sanitation that prevented them from contracting diseases. Isn't that wonderful?" And I want to scream um, because that's not wonder. I mean, that's that's interesting. If it's if it has truth to it, that's fine. That is not what's wonderful about those laws of purification. What's wonderful about those laws of purification are that is that they are living pictures of the work of the Son of God in the soul of man purifying and cleansing and washing us with the water of his his word himself 
Um, you know, they, they say the greatness of, I've heard of people say, you know, look, they have to circumcise them on the eighth day. And people say, you know, what's really interesting about that is that science has proven that about the eighth day after birth, the, that's when your blood coagulates most blah, blah, blah. I don't know. And it, you won't bleed as much when you're circumcised. And I, I'm, I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys have heard all that stuff, but the, everyone's always looking for other things besides Christ that are wonderful about the law. I'm telling you, with everything that is within me, the wonder, the wonderful thing that you'll see in the law when the Spirit of God opens your eyes is the thing that the Spirit of God was seeing when he gave the law as a shadow. You're going to see Christ. And um, so every dot and tittle of the law, or jot and tittle, I think is what it is, yeah, um, of the of the law is now life in you. It's a law that was written, but the written descriptions are now things that operate as a law of life in you by Christ. It's a written description of Christ. Formerly, it's the law of the spirit of, of life in Christ now. And so what you read in the law little by little becomes the experience of the Christian in whom Christ is being revealed. And uh and that's that's about the greatest thing. I mean that that's so all of these descriptions that, that's why that's why I mean and and the and the the summary of it is this nature that loves God with all of its heart, soul, and mind, and loves its neighbor as itself. I mean, the whole thing, the, the nature of the relationship, and all, and you can sum up the, you know, don't steal your neighbor's ox and move his boundary marker, and all these different things that have to do with equity and perfection and justice, and all these, you can sum them all up in this one nature that's, that contains and manifests all of those things. That this one life, this one nature, that is all of those things, and that's that's the Lord, that's Jesus. But that's not Jesus just in you because you're born again. That's Jesus revealed in you, known in your soul, formed in you, and glorified in you. It's not just the Jesus that you received forty years ago and haven't thought much about since, or maybe you think about him on Sundays when you're singing a hymn. It's not that Jesus. It's the Jesus it's the Jesus that the soul is coming to know as its life, as its light, as its purpose, as its truth. The thing that the soul the life, the Christ that the soul is clinging to and and fleeing from everything else. It's that Jesus that becomes real in the soul in his own light. And and th- then the law, the written laws, are seen to be testifying of the very nature uh, that's working in you. The righteous requirement, Romans 8, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk by his spirit. That's how it's fulfilled. It's it, it's righteous. The law, God never changes the law, but He brings it into its greater form in spiritual, internal, and eternal in the soul, and fulfills it in you by His own Spirit's operation. 
and that I wasn't planning on saying any of that, but it's it's just so important that we understand it. And so when you get to the Ten Commandments, which is what he gets into in um, Exodus chapter twenty, you, you have to understand that the way to keep any of these commandments is not primarily with your hands or with your mouth or with your eyeballs. The way that you keep the commandments of God is with His own Spirit reigning in your soul. The, again, the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us as we walk by His Spirit. So, so you, you can be a, you can have rigid external obedience to the law and at the same time filthy inward rebellion. Which is exactly what Jesus, the reason Jesus kept calling everyone a hypocrite. Because that's exactly what he kept seeing everywhere. Rigid external obedience alongside of filthy inward rebe- rebellion. <clears throat> And Jesus was seeing that, uh, that that was the issue. You can't really keep the law if, if, if your whole being and nature and constitution remains the man who is contrary to it. You can't do it. You, you can't live in Adam and keep the law. It's a contradiction. You have to, the only way to, to keep the law is when your heart is circumcised. That is to say, your heart, something is cut off from your heart and it's a lot more significant than a foreskin. It's the whole old man. It's the, uh, Colossians 2.11, the circumcision without hands, the removal of the entire body of flesh through the circumcision of Christ. It's that, that's, you can't love the Lord your God without your heart being circumcised. You can't keep the word of your, the Lord your God. You can't obey his voice without your heart being circumcised. You can't even hear, it says in the prophets, until your ears are circumcised. What does that mean? It means uh, the wrong man that stuffs up your ears and makes you deaf has to be cut down by the work of the cross. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so let's look at some of these Ten Commandments uh, a little bit here. and um, the, the, the Ten Commandments, I think, have... I think we talked about this a little bit last time. You know, the first commandment, what what is have no other gods before God. That doesn't mean, that does not mean, well, like I said, I think last week, there's a natural, ex, again, there's a natural, external, physical, temporal way to obey these commandments. You cannot have any other gods before him. And part of the fulfilling of that, the, the way that it was most manifestly disobeyed in the Old Covenant was by having other uh, physical idols or, 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 or worshipping Baal or the, or the, the, the Ashtoreth poles or, or Dagon, which was like some kind of a giant serpent thing, I think, and, or the sun, moon, the sun gods and the, you know, all these different, uh, literally de- deities of false deities by other names that's that's one way of having other gods um the the more but but the thing that made the thing that made those things other gods the things that made them uh idols wasn't their carved existence or their wrong name that's not the problem the problem was they they came out from 
man's ideas. They they did not. They weren't God's revealing of Himself to the soul. That's see what what is uh, what is uh, what's an idol? An idol is just something. It's why it says, "Make no idol after anything you've seen in the heavens or in the earth or below the earth and the seas. Make no anything that you've seen. Don't make it into an image." But see, we do that all the time about Christ according to the things that we think we've seen or we've read in a book or our pastor has told us and we form these images these likenesses these imaginations and we and and we uh we forge them but we just don't use we don't use wood or metal anymore that's not that's not that common in the body of Christ at least but what is every bit as common as it always has been is that we fashion idols after in in the image and likeness of the things that come from our mind and come from our heart and are according to our desires. They may not be a, a, a physical golden calf, but they're the exact same thing. And we call it Jesus. We call it the God who brought us out of Egypt. We call it all the right terms. Uh, and yet we're, we're, it's not, it's not him. And, uh, and the only way to not the, the only way to not form a graven image, the only way to not make an idol is not to get your theology correct from a man, but to receive the image of God from him. In other words, to receive his own view, his own truth in his own light. That's because anything outside of that is your idea about God. So if you be very, very careful because by nat, by nature, you, you begin as you're, you're an idol maker. You're, you're a, you're a, you're a craftsman who, who, who by nature, it, it wants to and starts to form your views and your ideas about God. And you may get some, you might have Bible verses to support those, those ideas, but that doesn't make them God's understanding of those Bible verses. So we, we create, uh, we create carved image, but we just carve them in our hearts. We carve them in our minds. And, and that's what, that's a far greater way of, uh, and a far more sneaky way of worshiping false false gods. And you can do that with all of these Ten Commandments. Again, there's always, like, you know, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And that one guy, you know, he was getting in a fight with so-and-so and he cursed the Lord's name and they stoned him. Well, you can, that's that's one way. It, that's the, that was a very external physical, vocal way of taking the Lord's name in vain, attaching the Lord's name to some kind of cursings or whatever. Uh, there's there's a much greater uh, way, a much easier way, and a much more, um, a less obvious way of taking the Lord's name in vain now, and that is simply taking his name and attaching it to something that is not his life, uh, using it, um, using it in a way that is that he doesn't even how would I say it that he doesn't using his name associated with something that ha- does not have him as its as its substance as its as its reality as its life. That is attaching his name to vanity. 
Um, and, and again, the Sabbath, you know, what, what is keeping the Sabbath? Keeping the Sabbath is a really big deal in the whole, I mean, it's a really, really, it's, it's one of the things that he, uh, all throughout the prophets when he's condemning Israel for backsliding or turning away, a lot of the time it has to do with breaking the Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath. Why is that so important? Again, there's a physical rest that he commanded on a natural seventh day that had to do with not kindling, carrying sticks and working and whatever. Why is it so important? Why, why was it such a big deal to God? Because of what it represents, because of what it speaks to. It speaks to a kind of day in which man brings nothing of himself into it but receives all things made unto him from God in Christ. It speaks of a rest from yourself. It, it speaks of an end of, of the labor of that natural man. It speaks of coming into houses that were not that you didn't build and wells that you didn't dig and vineyards that you didn't plant. It has to do with with it's an important picture because it, there's there's no greater reality to the gospel than it's not I but Christ. So so the rest of God is, I mean, the Sabbath of God is this is it's like God's way of screaming in type and shadow language. You bring nothing into this land. You bring nothing into this relationship. You bring you come in as a soul that receives all things from my hand, all things. In my Son, Christ made unto you death and resurrection and sanctification and wisdom and righteousness and whatever else. Christ, you don't do it. You don't, you, you find it in Him. It's a land that He reveals to you. And, and that's a, you know, and, 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 um, in Isaiah 58, I think it's verse 13. Isaiah saw beyond the natural Sabbath, and and he says uh, he's talking about the Sabbath, and he says, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and you honor it. In these three ways, he says, honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure, and from speaking your own word. Now, see, he, he doesn't just say it's about resting and sitting down and not working. It's a day that your own way, your own pleasure, and your own word. It's man's way, man's word, and man's pleasure. They don't even enter into. That's how, that's how you enter into the Sabbath of the Lord. Isaiah 58, 13. So, again, you take... You look at that, and 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 uh, there's a greater way than just the the written commandment here. There's something. There's always something more in view. There's always a view of these laws as they are spiritually real in Christ. He says, "Do not murder." You know, well, there is a nature that kills. There's a nature that cannot love. It's not just the action that's bad. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a nature there's that, 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 that cannot love its brother, that wants to remove its brother for its own benefit. It's like Cain. Cain is that nature. He, he represents that, that, uh, you know, I am not my brother's keeper. I killed my brother for my own benefit. That nature 
is a murderer. And to whatever extent that nature is governing and working in you, whether your hand's committed or not, that is murder. And Jesus is exposing that to them. There's the, Yes, there was an external, physical, temporary uh, way of, of demonstrating that death, and yet, but, but there was... I mean, that kind of murder, but there, Jesus is saying there's an inward, spiritual, horrible, much worse way. I'm telling you, you're guilty of it if that nature abounds in you. So he makes it, uh, he makes the fulfillment of it the gaining of a new nature. Make the tree bad or make it good, because a bad fruit can't produce ba- a good f- fruit, and a good tree can't produce bad fruit. And we could go, you know, what is adultery? Well, God is constantly calling his his people adulterers, and it has nothing to do with their marriages. Although, again, uh, in 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 the earth there are marriages, a natural, temporary, um, uh, uh, external, you know. I mean, there's there's aspects of union in in marriage, but it's still external. Uh, relationship that that speaks of uh, uh, the union of the soul with God, and um, God is God is always dealing with God is always dealing with him as as harlots. I was just reading, uh, what was it? it was with my Saturday night group? We were looking at uh, Ezekiel sixteen. You're probably familiar with this chapter. If you're not, it's awesome. It's it's this it's God describing his relationship with Israel. He does the same thing in a lot of places. I mean, he does it really clearly with uh, Go, um, Hosea and Gomer, the whole harlot thing. But here he says, um, he says, as for your birth, Ezekiel sixteen four, as for your birth on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in clothes. And no eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Notice he doesn't say, I forgive you. He says, live first, um, because that's how it starts. I made you numerous like plants of the field. <clears throat> then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, you, uh, uh, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. And also I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. And I bathed you in water. And, blah, blah, blah. and it goes on. And, and it just all these kind things that, that God did for her. And But, the, but then it says... Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes and made for yourself high places of various colors. Wait, made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot on them. I don't, I'm not exactly sure what that means exactly, but which should never come, uh, come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made by my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. And he just goes on and just keeps talking about how, like, um, yeah, it goes on. The whole rest of the chapter is about her harlotry, it looks like here. 
And, and so again, as I say all that just to say that, that the Ten Commandments are, are, are the, 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 do not commit adultery. Adultery is in a far greater way than it is a sin against the body. It is a sin against God, or a sin against the wife or a spouse. It's a sin against God to whom your soul was created to be joined. And, uh, okay. So, anyway, if you go, you could do that with all the, all the Ten Commandments. And you could really do that with all of the law. There's a, there's just so many things. I just, I don't know about you guys, but I just, I, I love to just read over the Old Testament and, Sometimes I get stuck in one area where the Lord's really opening my eyes, and sometimes I get to a spot and I feel like I can't see anything, and I just kind of go over it quickly and go to wherever the Lord's dealing with my heart. But, but it seems like there's always somewhere where there's there's a window cracking open a little bit more. And the thing that I that I see, the thing that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. I mean, that's what that's what all of these prophecies and that's what all these pictures are pointing to in one way or another. I'm going to get to a couple. Of these things, but let, let me just say a couple, uh, one or two things here about the end, uh, the altar. <clears throat> this is just something that's been on my mind a little bit, because um, in the end of chapter twenty, he goes through the Ten Commandments and he says here at the end, uh, verse twenty-four: "You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, and every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you." If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not uh, build it of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. So it's it's not supposed to be like high up on some kind of a podium with like steps going up to it, so that no one's going to be looking up, you know. I guess everyone wore skirts back then, or I don't know, whatever those gowns, togas, whatever they are, I don't know. And uh, so that so that you, you the flesh wouldn't be seen as they ascended to the to the altar. You know, that's not the place for any flesh to be seen. It's not the place for the for a tool for man's work to be recognized. It's it's a it's, to, it's something totally separate than that. And and I just thought I'd say a couple things here about the altar. We might have talked about the altar a little bit when we were talking about Abraham. Because Abraham, uh, well, Noah too. I don't know. I can't remember where, where, if I said anything about it then, but just thought I'd mention a couple things here. Ba- basically, um, and part of this I think I've said before. Uh, part of it I, I'm pretty sure I haven't. The, the part I think I've said before is that I, I really I think that it's it's right to say that the altar is the cross. The altar speaks of the cross, um, in, in a and, and, but not not just in any old way in two in two specific ways um, that I see that I see at in, in all the places where altars appear throughout the Old Testament. Uh, one, it's this it's this place where flesh or uncleanliness comes to be consumed and completely removed. It's it's that. It's that door that flesh cannot go through. It's and and so uh, it everything that is of the flesh is burnt up there. It can't remain. 
But the altar is also, and these these are kind of like the two sides of the cross. The, the altar is also um, the place or the means by which something else is presented and offered up to God or lifted up to God, usually in the form of a smoke or a smell. But something ascends from, something is consumed at the altar, put away. Something is, is presented to God and accepted at the offer, at the altar too. And, and I feel like that's really the, I mean, you, you go back to Noah, you start with Noah right after the flood, whole, the whole Adamic race, with the exception of what was in Noah, what was in Christ, what was in the ark was put away and and then out of this ark comes this new creation with the new covenant and where God gives the the life and the blood is sacred and you it it belongs to him and the life of that covenant and and he comes out and then and then there's this burnt offering and there and and um you see there's the death of these these clean animals that he had brought remember he brought seven clean animals and and, and only two of the um two of the other ones and he offers up all these these dead animals in this in this burnt offering, and um, and and it says that God smelled the fragrance, and it was a it was a sweet smelling fragrance to his nostrils. And when he smelled it, he said, "I will never again destroy the earth as I have done." And that's such an awesome picture of the cross because there was something destroyed, put away. There was a whole world destroyed in that picture, represented by that offering. That offering was just like a, a microcosm of of what he just did in a huge way in the entire earth, putting away the entire first man and one judgment in one picture of the cross everything cut down put away and then uh, and then also a fragrance of something that lifts up to him and he accepts it and says I'll, from now on there is no condemnation under this rainbow from now on there is no there's no more judgment for those who are in this covenant for those who are in this in this new life that I'm bringing out of the ark and you see it there and then you, you see it I mean we could we could go back and look at a bunch of Different ones, but I basically think that's the that's the crux of it. With whether you're talking about Noah or Abraham or Moses or whoever's offering on altars, and 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 yet, and this is the part that's a little bit different that I just I can't I can't I keep, this keeps popping up as I read through the through the through the Bible, and that is the fact that I feel like as, uh, that the that the altar is is still the it's the work of the cross, but. Um, I've been thinking about it as the work of the cross specifically as it um, as it takes place in our hearts or maybe maybe in some ways I kind of see us as the altar itself or, or our hearts as the altar in which or upon which the work of the cross. I mean, I, I, I think that there's a sense, let me try to say it a different way. I think there's a sense in which we are that box. We are that, that rectangle, that cube, that, that hollow thing that bears on it the fire of the Lord that, um, that's always putting away something and it's always offering up something else to the Lord if if we're allowing that work to be the work of the altar to be done in us. And there's there's a lot of stories excuse me. There's a lot of uh of of uh reasons why I think that um there's just 
like, I don't know if I, to name them all, I mean, there's, there's just the fact that I feel like in a number of the stories, even the sprinkling of the blood on the sides of the altar kind of represents covering the entire people. Uh, I, I see the Ark of the Covenant as that, uh, which is also an, you know, another altar with, with the cherubim on it, but it, it's, uh, I see that box as that that altar as the the new creation in which God dwells and all the things of the new covenant are found inside of it and it's this perfect new new creation made of the same material as as uh as the the, the cherubim and and and, um, and and then there's the fact that the um a lot of times it says instead of like Take this person. Um, does it say it in this chapter? Let me see here. Somewhere right around here. No, it's a little later. It's it says, take so and so. Oh yeah, here it is. Exodus twenty one fourteen. If a man acts presumptuously towards his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him away from my altar. That he may die. That's just a really interesting thing. As, as though, like, taking you away from that, like, like the people live in that altar. Or then there's, the, then there's in Revelation, the people are always crying out from the altar, in the altar, around the altar, underneath the altar. It's like, it's like they're that's where they are. That's where their prayers are being lifted up. It just it just seems to be something that kind of keeps keeps uh, keeps appearing and 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 the reason I think it's the reason I think that's not not just because it, it's like some kind of a Bible code or something that that it's important but what what I think is important about it is because I, I personally just love the view of my heart being an altar upon which. Something is being put off and something is being lifted up. Something is being uh, burned away and destroyed. And, and something is being lifted up as a sweet-smelling aroma unto God. And that taking place in the soul. And so I decided to mention that. It, it, it's, it's not a work of man. Uh, it's not anything you profane it by adding your own work to it. it that's that's why I, I feel like the the altar is not to be cut with tools. It's it's a lot like remember when uh, Solomon was building the the house. It said that all the stones were cut far away from the temple and brought there so that there was not the sound of a hammer or a chisel or a saw or whatever in the construction of the temple. It's a kind of an obscure little verse there um, when Solomon's building the temple. I think it's in the beginning of First Kings. But, uh, but, but it's really important because it's not the work of man. He won't even let the sound of man's work be associated with the building of that temple. And I see that same thing here. And then just the fact that flesh is not allowed to be seen at this, this altar. It's not, it doesn't mix with this altar. It, it gets consumed by this altar. It profanes the altar. Um, so anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. Um, in, Oh man! Wow, I'm running out of time. That went really fast. Uh, Exodus. Let me just let me say this. this. I just I love this, and I'll mention it, and then I guess I'll stop after this. But um, Exodus twenty-one six uh, one through six. Let me let me just read this part here because uh, it, it paints a really um, really beautiful picture. In, in my heart now, and something that I've been kind of talking to the Lord a lot about recently. But 
Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, um, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he's the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons and daughter or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door of uh, or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an owl. 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 That's what I'm trying to say. Owl. 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 And he shall serve him permanently. Um, I just, I, I love that for, for a lot of reasons. First, because, first and foremost, because it's what every wise servant should do in God's house. Um, rather than running outside of the master, rather than running outside of this, the slavery, which is actually freedom, but, but rather seeing that your good and your life and your family and your, uh, your, everything is bound up in this, in this one house that you were meant to serve. The dumbest thing in the world you could do is ever want to try to become free from that slavery. And and when you realize that being a slave to God is the only way of finding true freedom from yourself, freedom from sin and death, freedom from darkness and the lie, when you when you understand that, then um and you then you understand that the, the the greatest thing to do is for you to join in that house permanently and the way the way that you do that is you go to the door the the same old i mean every time the door is mentioned it's always the same door it's always going to the same place it's always going to the house of god and the way in is always blood on the doorpost and you have to experience that blood. It's your death too. It's not just his death for you. It's not, you're the one, it's just like Exodus chapter 12. You're the one going in, eating the dead lamb, painting its blood on a thing, going into the blood. This, In this case, you're going up to the door. You're being nailed to that door. Your own blood's being shed. You're being pierced through, just like the one who made the door. Just, just like the one who is the door. And and you you join in the master's house, and that's the way. And and here's the best thing about this whole little section that I, I just love so much. This is the way that you love God. Everybody says, everybody says they love God, and yet their hearts are offering up to the Lord this continual fragrance of hatred, of selfishness, of of desire, loving God for. Uh, loving our imaginations about God far more than we love God himself. But the heart that really loves God is 
the heart that is willing to find nothing outside of him and all things in him by partaking of his death and entering into his door and finding all things in his house. You see what I'm saying? You love the Lord to the, you do not love the Lord if you refuse that death. You can't. You can't love the Lord and resist the, 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 the remove, um, how do you say it? You can't love the Lord and hold on to the man that is contrary to the Lord in every way. You can't really love the Lord in Esau. You, you have to let Esau be put to death and find the love of God in Jacob. You, you, I hope you're following a little bit. I'm not trying to sound cryptic. I just am using kind of some of the language of types and shadows here that have become really sweet to my heart. The only way to really love God is to lose your li- is to lose your life, what you've called your life, not go out as a free man, so to speak, a free man who's really in bondage to the enemy, but not to go out as a free man, but to really lose your life and to serve in the, to become a volunteer in the day of his power, to be to be a, a willing uh, branch that abides in his vine, one that has no life of himself, one that's been pierced through at the door and, and shed his blood there and gone in and joined himself permanently to the master's house. So, uh, yeah, that's a good way. Or long for your life in any way. It's, this is that's what that's what um, that's what. Uh, Lot's wife did. I mean, it wasn't just she was curious and peeked over her shoulder. She was, she was, she was looking back and not, not just like, hey, what was that sound? You know, it was, it was longing for her own life in, in a way, going back to a place where she found her life that was under God's condemnation. It was really death and, and that's what her heart wanted and that's what she turned into. But, but, and, and the love of God isn't there. The love of God isn't in Sodom. It's not in Gomorrah. It's not in Egypt. It's in a totally different land. You have to, you have to leave all that behind and you find it by losing what you've called life and, and going into a door where on the other side it's Christ all and in all. And if you really love God, then you let Him come and make His home in you where it's not I but Christ. And uh, and Jesus says that too in John. What is that? John fourteen. That one of the guys says to him, "Why, why are you just showing yourself to me and, and to, to us and not to the whole world?" If, you know. And he says, "If anyone loves me, my Father and I will go to him and we will make our home in him." There's your answer. If anyone loves us, if anyone's willing to lose their life, if anyone's willing to to exchange the, the dung for for beauty, you know, uh, or, or ashes for beauty. And then, then, then we'll find that heart, and we'll move right in. But you have to be willing to to pass through that door. So, okay, I guess I'm out of time. <laughs>